The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 80, to the chief musician set to the lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come and save us. Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. Why have you broken down her hedges, so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted, and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. We're in Deuteronomy 27, 1 through 11 today. We're going to find out exactly why the psalmist need to pray the way he did in that psalm when we go through this, and especially the next seven sermons, which will be in Deuteronomy 28. It's a very mournful chapter. Uh, this is setting it up right now in chapter 27. We saw the first half last week. This will finish the chapter. But the history of Israel is a very sad history because of the law that they placed themselves under when they agreed to the terms that the Lord set forth. Okay, They only have themselves to blame because they agreed to it. But it's a sad history, and uh, we're going to be seeing that in the next, uh, like I said, today in the next seven sermons. So keep these things in mind and know that despite Israel's unfaithfulness, God has remained faithful to them. And that's the important thing to get out of all of this. All of the destruction, all of the death, all of the sadness is something that has occurred because of their disobedience. But the Lord promised faithfully to keep them as a people, and he has done so. And that is a template of your salvation, is that the Lord is keeping us despite the things that we do after being saved because he is a gracious God and he has made the covenant with us in his blood, in the blood of Christ Jesus. So keep that in mind as we read or go through this sermon and the next seven sermons. All right, from uh, Deuteronomy 27, 11 through 26. And Moses commanded the people on the same day saying, 
These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Aval to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the works of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Amen. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due the stranger, the fatherless, and widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's bed. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. One of the things about the series Star Trek, at least the original series, is that it touched upon countless aspects of humanity that often merged with man's seeking out a relationship with the Creator. This was often only subtly seen, and at times it was overt. One episode, Bread and Circuses, dealt with the issue on a surprising level. The ship arrived at a planet that resembled ancient Rome. The persecuted Roman citizens had put their trust in the sun. At the end of the show, a surprising exchange took place. Spock said, I wish we could have examined that belief of his more closely. It seems illogical for a sun worshiper to develop a philosophy of total brotherhood. Sun worship is usually a primitive superstition religion. Uhura says, I'm afraid you have it all wrong, Mr. Spock. All of you. I've been monitoring some of their old-style radio waves. The Empire spokesman trying to ridicule their religion, but he couldn't. Don't you understand? It's not the sun up in the sky. It's the Son of God. Kirk said, Caesar and Christ, they had them both. And the word is spreading only now. One of their full-length films followed a path toward the divine as well. Spock's brother was intent on going to meet God. In order to do so, he hijacked the Enterprise and headed for his destination. Being summoned by a call, he could not seem to resist. Our text verse comes from Deuteronomy 11. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known. Towards the end of the movie, while the voyagers were on the planet, they had been summoned to, an almost comical exchange took place. This supposed god 
asked about how they came to him. They told him it was by a starship. This god then asked if the starship could carry his wisdom beyond the Great Barrier. When he was told it could, he then said, then I will make use of this starship. At this point, an obvious question arose from Captain Kirk. Excuse me, I'd just like to ask a question. What does God need with a starship? It was a good question to ask. In one of our verses today, the people are told, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. A set of similar questions could be asked of us. If there is a God, why do we need a carved or molded image? Why do we need to carve it with our own hands? And why do we need to set it up in secret? What is it about the search for God, whether in a movie to stimulate our thoughts or in our own actions, that is often so incorrect? There were over 1,400 years of the law, and not a single person lived through the ordeal. Not one. And then came Christ Jesus. He not only lived under it, he died in fulfillment of it, and he resurrected to prove it. And yet, to this day, people keep trying to do better than he did. The morning I typed this sermon, someone who had already been counseled on the futility of this, meaning going back under the law, emailed back attempting to explain why the law still had merit to live by. I responded, but it's pretty certain to me that my reply will go nowhere. What is it about grace that we just cannot get? It is that we simply cannot let go of our pride. Pay attention today. After evaluating these words of law and condemnation, we'll explain once again how to avoid both. Great things such as the infinitely marvelous grace of God are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. I'm sorry, I think I've only got one thought for you today. It's 12 curses, verses 11 through 26. Verse 11, and Moses commanded the people on the same day saying, the words of this verse follow after those of verse one, which said, now Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, keep all the commandments, which I command you today. First came the instruction for the building of the edifice on which was to be written all the words of the law. With those instructions complete, Moses now immediately on the same day turns to the right that is to be conducted once that altar was completed. The instructions for that right begin with verse 12. These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Mount Gerizim is the Mount of Blessing. The name Gerizim comes from the word garaz, meaning to cut, cut up, or cut off. Being a plural word, the meaning is something like the cutters down. It may refer to those who harvest due to the fertility of the mountain. This then would be in complete contrast to Mount Abal, which as was noted last week is the bald mountain. As far as the Hebrew, it says the people shall stand Al-Har-Gerizim, or upon Mount Gerizim. However, Joshua 8 seems to contradict this, saying the following, Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger, as well as he who was born among them, half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them were in front of Mount Ebal as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before, that they should bless the people of Israel. There the Hebrew reads el mul, or to front, rather than upon. 
one could infer that they are not on the top of the mountain, but rather on the side of it, or are at the base of it. But one could also infer that Joshua is speaking of the opposite tribes facing one another. Thus, they could all be on their assigned mountain while facing to front those on the other mountain. In whatever way they were actually situated in Joshua, Moses now substantially repeats the thought of verse 27 to verse 12, when you have crossed over the Jordan. In verse 27 to he says, in the day you cross over. Here he says, be'avarechem, or in your crossing over. In other words, it is to be as close to the time of crossing over as is reasonable. From the time they cross the Jordan, it should be a fixed goal to proceed with the building of this altar and continuing this rite. As such, those who are to stand and bless are, verse 12 going on, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. The Hebrew is more specific. Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Joseph and Benjamin. Each of these descends from the two wives of Jacob, Leah and Rachel. These were both the free women, not the servants. As such, it forms the same picture as Sarah and Hagar make, which is used by Paul in Galatians chapter 4. The free woman represents the blessing of Christ upon the people apart from the law because of his fulfillment of it. The first four sons noted here are from Leah in order of birth. The last two are from Rachel in order of birth. Next, verse 13. And these shall stand on Mount Abal to curse. The Hebrew is more specific, using a noun, not a verb, when referring to the curse. And these standing upon the curse in Mount Abal. The law is written on Mount Abal. Because of the specific wording, it is as apparent as the nose on one's face that Mount Abal, representing the law because that is where the law is written upon the altar, signifies a curse. Paul states this explicitly in Galatians chapter 3. He says the following, For as many are as of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Those designated to stand upon the curse are, verse 13 continues, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. Two of these are sons of Leah, Reuben and Zebulun. Reuben is designated here to stand on the curse because he lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, thus forfeiting his rights of the firstborn. Zebulun, simply being the youngest of Leah, was stuck being on Mount Ebal in order to even out the number of tribes. Of the other four, Gad and Asher were born to Leah's maidservant Zilpah, while Dan and Naphtali were born to Rachel's maidservant Bilhah. Even though the two from Bilhah were born first, they are noted not in that order. Rather, they are by order of mother. The sons of Leah, though younger, are listed in birth order, and then those of Rachel, though older, are then listed in birth order. Finally, Zebulun is listed after the sons of Bilhah, but before the sons of Zilpah, even though he was born last in this list. 
Thus he is put behind Leah, but before Rachel. There is a definite order that is carefully being followed in the listing of the sons, placing Leah, who pictures the law, before Rachel, who pictures grace. The lesson is that only in the fulfilling of the curse of the law can grace then be bestowed. Of these two facing mountains, Gerizim is to the south and Eval is to the north. Or, in reference to the layout of the directions in the Bible, Gerizim is to the right and Eval is to the left. Thus it matches the scriptural pattern of the right hand of blessing and the left hand of cursing. For example, and I read this last week, I'm reading it again to you so you get this in your head. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. In the state of the two mountains, one can see a contrast. The Mount of Blessing is the Fertile Mountain. The Mountain of Curse is the Bald Mountain. Thus there is metaphor being conveyed. Obedience to the Lord will bring blessing to the land, while disobedience will bring a curse. Verse 14, and the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all of the men of Israel, rather than speak, the word used ana signifies to respond or to answer. In other words, when the people are properly situated, that is the cue to respond with their voices. There is an order being followed with one step leading to the next. The word translated as loud is rum. It means to be high or exalted. Thus, the voice is to be lifted so that it will carry between the two parties standing on each mountain. This is the only time that the phrase kol ram, or voice lifted, is seen in all of Scripture. As was noted in Joshua 8, the ark was in the middle of the two companies with the priests that bore it. If all of the Levites called out together, it would be a tremendously loud call. Their number was recorded in the census of Numbers 26, which was just a very short time ago. Now those who were numbered of them were 23,000, every male from a month old and above, for they were not numbered among the other children of Israel, because there was no inheritance given to them among the children of Israel. 23,000 voices being raised is a very loud call. However, there are various interpretations as to who actually does the calling. Is it the Levites on Mount Gerizim? Is it the Levitical priests in the middle? Is it some of the Levites in the middle? The account is not specific except to say the Levites. Hence, there is no reason to assume that it is only the priests, but rather the entire congregation of Levites who are standing on Mount Gerizim. If so, it would be an immense lifting of the voice so that it could easily be heard a very long distance away. Of the scene before us, Kyle states the following. See if you can find the error in his wording. From the expression, all the men of Israel, it is perfectly evident that in this particular ceremony, the people were not represented by the elders or heads, but were present in the persons of all their adult men who were over 20 years of age. And with this, Joshua 8.33, when rightly interpreted, fully harmonizes. First, neither account says anything of the age of the men. Secondly, the term Kal Ish Yisrael, or all men of Israel, doesn't mean only the men. Rather, Joshua 8 goes on to say the following. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. 
In other words, every single person of Israel is referred to. The masculine, all men of Israel, speaks for the whole. Thus, when someone says the words, when rightly interpreted, it doesn't necessarily mean that what they are saying is, in fact, rightly interpreted. Use care when evaluating the words of those who evaluate the word. Whatever actually occurred concerning which Levites were the ones to call out, it is the voices of the Levites that begin the antiphonal recitation of the 12 curses, saying, verse 15, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image. Each of these curses has already been addressed. Moses is citing examples of various sorts of laws from these different sections in order to bind all of the sections together in the minds of the people. There isn't some type of elevation of certain laws, such as the Ten Commandments, above other laws, such as those that define sexual morality in Leviticus. Each violation of the law violates the law and results in that person becoming a curse. This will be especially highlighted in the final pronouncement. It is exactly what James states in James 2.10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. The first call of cursing addresses an offense against the nature and character of God. In forming an image, it denies him the glory that he is due. The first word is pesel. It is a carved image coming from pesal, meaning to hew into shape. It was first noted in Exodus 20 at the giving of the Ten Commandments. There it said, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, pesel, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The next word is maseka. It comes from nasak, signifying to pour out. Thus, it is an image made from molten metal, a cast image. That was first seen in the infamous account of the golden calf in Exodus 32. Exodus 32.4, And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. That word there. Of these, Moses says they are, verse 15 continues, an abomination to the Lord. Toavat Yehovah. Abomination Yehovah. It is not so much an abomination to the Lord as it is something the Lord has declared as such. The state of the thing, its very existence, is abominable. To explain this, Moses next says, verse 15 going on, the work of the hands of the craftsmen. The purpose of a carved or molded image is to worship it. The irony of worshiping something made by the hands of man is evident. The utterly stupid thought that someone would do this demonstrates that one, That person has no heart for the creator, and two, there is no sense in the head of the man. Despite this, the next words actually reveal the depth of the stupidity in his head. Verse 15, and I say this right now, before I go on, I'm calling people stupid, I say this because that is the state of the unregenerate person. Any person here may have done this, Charlie Garrett has done this. I met Jesus Christ and I stopped doing these things. Does everybody understand when I'm saying stupid? I'm not saying that people are stupid in the general sense. I'm saying it in the specific sense. Doing this is stupid, okay? Verse 15 continues, and sets it up in secret. Vesam basatur, and sets in the secret. For a person to set such an idol up in secret means that he is hiding himself and it. But if this is a God, then it should be able to deliver him. So why does he need to have it set up in secret? It shows an implicit knowledge that God exists, but that the knowledge is suppressed. 
He cannot hide it from God, and yet he tries to hide it from God. It is exactly what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 1, suppressing the truth, becoming futile in one's thoughts, and having foolish hearts that are darkened. Verse 15 continues, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. In these words, there is a difference from the next 11 curses. Here it says, and they, plural, shall answer all the people and they, plural, say, Amen. After this, each such statement will be in the singular. It's not clear why this change is here, but it simply could be Moses' way of unambiguously stating that everyone, without exception, is to be included in the antiphonal response. Regardless, the calling out of Amen is an acknowledgement of the truth of the words and of the justice of the curse. It places what has been said as a statement of certainty, confirmed by the utterance, So be it, or Amen. Verse 16, cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. Just as an offense against the character of God was the example in the previous verse, it now speaks of an offense against the character of the parent. The word is kala. It signifies to lightly esteem or dishonor. Thus, to do so is to treat a parent with contempt. It is similar to the words of Leviticus 20 verse 9. For everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother, his blood shall be upon him. The word there is similar, but it's not the same as stated now by Moses. It is kalal instead of kala. It means to despise. The effect of using two different words is to ensure that the people would not be flippant in how they treated such things, such as using exact words to claim innocence. Well, I did this, but I didn't do that. Everybody got that? He's using different words to show you that the offense remains regardless of your linguistic gymnastics, okay? In other words, a general precept arises from Moses' use of multiple words, thus bolstering the words of the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. For those who fail to do so, the call out is that they are a curse as such. Verse 16 continues, and all the people shall say, Amen. Ve'amar kal ha'am amen and shall say, singular, all the people, amen. It is in this singular manner that the rest of the antiphonal responses are directed to be made. Next, verse 17. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, amen. From an offense against the parent, the words now speak of an offense against one's neighbor. This was cited as a commandment in chapter 19. There it said, you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. The incorporation of this into the 12 curses is to demonstrate what a great offense doing such a thing is. It is deceitful, it is theft, and it is understood by all to be wrong. Even Job, who is outside of the covenant people, demonstrates that this is so. Job 24 says, some remove landmarks, they seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkeys of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. Job was referring to those people who do not know the ways of the Almighty. In other words, he notes that doing such a thing was an offense to an all-powerful creator. The precept is referred to twice by Solomon in the Proverbs, and the act is considered so reprehensible to the Lord that it is used as a comparative form of wickedness 
meaning it is a seriously grave sin. It is one of the reasons he gave for his coming wrath upon the land of Judah. Here's what it says in Hosea 5. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. From conduct towards one's neighbor, Moses now turns to conduct towards the helpless, saying, verse 18, Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. The words here are similar in thought to those of Leviticus 19.14. There it says, You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. This is certainly referring to actual blindness. But both the Lord and Moses have spoken of blindness in a spiritual sense as well. The Lord first said this in Exodus 23, And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Later, Moses restated the precept. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. As such, this must extend to deception of those who simply don't see or know concerning a particular matter. To put a stumbling block before the blind or to cause the blind to go astray in the way should be taken in both a literal and a spiritual sense. Job understood the need to direct the blind and stated as much, defending his own righteousness. He said, I was eyes to the blind and I was feet to the lame. Verse 19, cursed is the one who perverts the justice to the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Arur mate mishpat ger yatom ve'amana. Cursed he who extends justice, stranger, fatherless, and widow. The idea here is also included in the words we just cited for the previous verse. Verse 16, 19 from Deuteronomy. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. The word translated as pervert is nata. It signifies to stretch out, to extend, bend, and so on. This then must go both ways. The lack of any preposition before stranger, fatherless, and widow is telling. It doesn't say do the stranger, from the stranger, for the stranger, or any other such thing. This is inclusive of stretching of justice for them or against them. In Exodus 23, we read of both. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. And then from Exodus 23, 6, you shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. The idea here in Deuteronomy covers both thoughts. What is right is right, and justice is to be blind to the status of the individual. A poor man is never to be given a favorable but unrighteous decision simply because he is poor. Nor is a poor man to be abused in justice because he is poor. Jeremiah 5 speaks about the latter. Jeremiah 5.28, they have grown fat, they are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper. And the right of the needy, they do not defend. Anyone who perverts justice, extending it for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, beyond what is proper, is cursed. With these laws so far stated, Moses now turns to four matters concerning sexual immorality, 
beginning with verse 20. Before I give you verse 20, the judges of our nation are in big, big trouble right now because of that law right there. They have extended in both directions. They're in big trouble. Verse 20, cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed. And all the people shall say, amen. This was stated in Leviticus 18. You do not uncover the nakedness of your father and the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You do not uncover her nakedness. You do not uncover the nakedness of the wife of your father. It is the nakedness of your father. That's the literal standard version. In Leviticus 18.7, the second clause explains the first. As the father and mother are one flesh due to their union, a son sleeping with his mother would then uncover both her nakedness and the father's. This then is further defined by verse 18.8. The idea is that of the two being one. A man is not to have sex with his father's wife even if she is not the person's mother. This would then also uncover the father's nakedness. Some claim this is what Ham did to Noah, but that has to be read into the account. In fact, that actually seems more unlikely because it is something that Reuben, the eldest of Jacob, did when he slept with Bilhah, Jacob's concubine. In that account, which also predates the law, the wording is very specific. But the account of Ham and Noah makes no such inferences. What he did was probably mocking or homosexual in nature. Absalom also slept with his father David's concubines in 2 Samuel 16. Despite not being under the law of Moses, this is also what occurred in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul fully condemned that as perverse. Moses next turns towards even more unnatural relations. Verse 21, cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. This has already been stated in one way or another three times. It was first stated in Exodus 22, verse 19. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. The precept was then expanded on in Leviticus 18:23 and Leviticus 20, 15, and 16. Any who do this are cursed. Next he says, verse 22, Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. This was stated in Leviticus 18, verse 9. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. It is often asked why this was considered okay prior to the law, such as with Abraham, but not afterward. There are several reasons for this, such as the fact that if people didn't intermarry, there would be no people. Adam and Eve had children right? If they couldn't intermarry, that would be the end of the human race right then. Another reason is that the world worked differently then. People lived extended periods implying that they were not physically affected in the same way that we are today. After the flood, things changed. The gene pool is now breaking down at a different rate, and it is no longer acceptable as a practice. For Israel, it is the law. Those who do this are cursed, also, verse 23, cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. The word translated as mother-in-law is chatan. It signifies to join in affinity. The Greek translation of this verse says, daughter-in-law. Either way, 
this was also stated in Leviticus. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are near of kin to her. It is wickedness. And from Leviticus 20, if a man marries a woman and her mother, it is wickedness. They shall be burned with fire, both he and they, that there may be no wickedness among you. Such unions were considered completely unacceptable and resulted in being cursed. From the acts of sexual immorality, it next states, verse 24, Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say, Amen. The word is naka. It means to strike. It can mean to kill, but there are also other words or descriptors that can be used to explain that. And yet, it is the same word used to describe what Moses did in Exodus 2 when he killed an Egyptian. To some, the words in secret support the idea of murder. It is as if he has killed and no one saw. But the act of murder is not clearly defined, and because of this, it could simply be referring to someone who arbitrarily attacks another, even without killing him. Probably the idea is simply attached to the words basater, or in the secret. A person who attacks and strikes another, though he thinks he got away with it, is cursed. Verse 25, cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. The words of this verse are more specific. It uses the same word, naka, or strike, but it then defines that. Arur lokeach shochad lehakot nefesh dam naki. Cursed he who takes bribe to strike soul, blood, innocent. The paying of bribes has already been denounced in both Exodus and Deuteronomy. In the case of this, it is surely speaking of taking one for the purposes of killing the person. The blood is the soul. That's found in Deuteronomy 12, verse 23. As such, the wording is implying that to take a payment in order to kill another will lead to that person being cursed. It is an offense noted as occurring in Jerusalem in Ezekiel 22, verse 12, saying, In you they take bribes to shed blood. With each of these statements now made, and all coming from various parts of the law as a summary, but not an exhaustive list of what brings a curse, Moses finishes with bad news for those who think they are okay because they haven't done any of the previous things. Verse 26 finishes with, Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. The word all is not in the Hebrew. You see it there, it's italicized. That means it's not in the original. However, it is implied nonetheless. It says, Cursed who does not confirm words, the Torah, the this, to do them. But Adam Clark instructs us further, saying, The word kol, all, is not found in any printed copy of the Hebrew text, but the Samaritan preserves it. And so do six manuscripts in the collections of Kennecott and De Rossi, besides several copies of the Chaldee Targum, the Septuagint also. And St. Paul, in his quotation of this place, Galatians 3.10, St. Jerome says that the Jews suppress the word, that it might not appear that they were bound to fulfill all the precepts in the law of Moses. Due to the number of witnesses that say all, it appears that someone may have taken the word out at some point, understanding the magnitude of what is being conveyed 
Paul is certainly citing the Septuagint, and the words are very clear. It says in Galatians 3.10, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now, that Septuagint predates Christ's coming by about 250 years. There's no doubt that word belongs in there, but they took it out because they did not want to admit that they were guilty before the Lord by violating this law. Moses is clearly stating the basis for the precept that James later made and which we cited earlier. If you stumble in one point of the law, you are guilty of all. And this isn't just an attempt to perform all of what is stated in the law and then give up, having attained perfection. One must perfectly do all the law requires and then continue to do so. Anything less brings a curse. And the fact is that none of us can do what the law demands. Of this, Charles Ellicott says the following, For no man can do all of them, and therefore it is impossible to secure the blessing of Gerizim except through him who bear the curse of the ball. In other words, what we have failed at, Christ accomplished. And in his accomplishment of those things, he took the curse of the law inscribed openly on Mount Abal upon himself. Does everybody remember the sermon last week if you were here? The altar pictures Christ. Everything about it, every single detail of that pictured Christ. That is what we're seeing here, is Christ fulfilling what we cannot do. Every time I got to the part in this sermon over the past two months since I typed it, every time I got to the part about honoring your parents, I was convicted because I don't honor my parents as I should. Every single time I came to that, I would stop and think, man, I'm so grateful for Jesus Christ. I get in arguments with my parents. I disagree with them over things that I should probably agree with, etc. Okay, and that's just one point. But the last point, even if that didn't happen in my life, the last point would be convicting because all of the laws, 613 laws coming from the hand of Moses and from the mouth of the Lord to tell us that, You must do these things. The man who does these things will live by them. And nobody can do it. And that's why every single one of those people died. They're all in the grave until the coming of Jesus Christ. He took the curse of the law inscribed openly on Mount Abal upon himself. The meaning of the number 12 is governmental perfection or perfection of government. The law of Moses was given as the governmental code by which Israel was to live. In order to find life, one would have to perfectly perform these mandates. When Christ came, he gave hints as to something new that was coming. In Matthew 5, he also went up on a mountain. But instead of calling out curses, he called out blessings, eight of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Verse 8, the first Bible verse I ever learned because it was on a magnet sticking to our refrigerator. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Eight is the superabundant number. As a standalone number, it signifies resurrection and regeneration and the beginning of a new era or order. He was conveying to us that something new was coming and it would be found in him. Upon conveying his eight blessings, he then added a ninth. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus was giving them a hint of what was coming. It would be he that would fulfill the law. He would die in fulfillment of it, and then he would return to life because the man who does the things of the law shall live by them. In the people's turning to him, even if reviled and persecuted, they would find reward in heaven. In this ninth blessing, Bollinger defines its meaning, saying, It is thus significant of the end of man and the summation of all man's works. Nine is, therefore, the number of finality or judgment. That is perfectly in accord with Jesus' ninth blessing. What is the word that is pleasing to God? What is it that allows man to stand before him with everything to offer while having nothing of his own to offer? What is it that is acceptable at the judgment of man? Jesus himself tells us in John 6, verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Moses says, Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. Jesus says, I have confirmed all of the words of the law by observing them. Now, trust me, that is your work. Simply believe that I have done what you cannot do. As an addendum to our thoughts, the John Lang commentary says, Not the hearers of the law are justified, but the doers. Vain are the hopes of men founded upon their obedience to the law. The amen is a condemnation upon ourselves and shuts us up to Christ, who alone is set up, established the words of this law to do them, and in whom, therefore, there is blessing instead of the curse. This is true. When we say amen to the law, we simply condemn ourselves. When we rely on and amen the work of Jesus Christ, nothing can ever separate us again from the love of God which is found in him. Be sure to trust him and put your hopes in him. Trusting in your own righteousness will lead only to a sad and bitter end. Thank God for Jesus Christ who became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Yes, thank God for our Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. They came from everywhere to hear you speak, to see the signs, to sit at your feet. They came with brokenness, with hope to their soul, with different walks of life. They came to the cross. But just how many chose to believe? How many followed and bowed at your feet? How many understood the meaning of the cross? How many knew that you are their only hope? How many still today come to see you, Lord, who want all your blessings but not the cross? How many still come to hear you speak, to see the signs, to sit at your feet? But in their hearts they choose not to believe that you are the life and the God who lives. Yet there are some still who accept your grace, the life through the cross as the only way. And still the wise seek after your love, the love which for their sake was nailed to the cross. My friend Isabella wrote that. Our closing verse comes from John 5. Before I give you that, I would fail you if I didn't give you a salvation call. The purpose of the law is to lead us to our understanding of our desperate need for Jesus Christ. God gave Israel the law to show the world his standard, what he expects of us. 
He expects absolute perfection. And nothing can come into his presence without being absolutely perfect. Nothing. And so he gave them that lesson through almost 1,500 years of history, living under this law and demonstrating that every single person in Israel died. They could not fulfill the law. Their graves are still there. Somewhere buried in Israel or all those people or they've turned to the dust and it's been swept around the world, but none of them are alive. Now, there is an exception to that, Elijah, who was taken to heaven directly, and there's a purpose for that. But other than him, who is going to come back and to die, according to Revelation chapter 11, the purpose of the law was to show us that we deserve condemnation. And we needed something more. We needed Jesus Christ, who came born under that law, who lived under that law, and who gave his life up in fulfillment of that law, having never violated any of its precepts. That is the glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ. He has done everything for you so that you can simply say, I believe that Christ came and he lived and died for me. And if you will believe that premise, that Christ is the Savior of the world and he can forgive you of your sins, the Bible says that you will be saved. That is what God asks of you. So please today, come to the cross of Jesus Christ. Accept that he died for your sins that he was buried and that he rose again, proving that he had no sin of his own. The only thing left in that grave when he came out is the sin of the people that call on him. It's buried forever. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words. Next week is Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 14. We'll start the chapter with 14 verses. In this, we will have begun. It's entitled, The Blessings and the Curses. Part 1. That'll be our 77th Deuteronomy sermon. Thank you, Jay. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He's got, he's got to practice this because he's got six more sermons after this to do that. So he, he better not uh, call in sick. That's for sure. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay. Now I got a question for you. Uh, I don't have anything that I bought at the store. They did have two-for-one cans, but it was just like beans, and I didn't want to buy beans. So I'll give you a ride on this YF-22 if you, uh, if you can get this question. This is so easy that everybody's going to get a ride. I'm going to be flying you around all day, okay? The curses today mentioned the blind. Name someone who was blind or who was blinded in the Bible. Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. Very good. I got like 10 answers. Paul, he was blind dead. So we have all kinds of people. I knew you get, I'll take you all out for a ride. What's that? I, I was blind, but I'm not in the Bible. Oh, that's true. You were blind and now you see. So there you go. I'll, I'll take all of you out for a ride and we'll do some, up, don't bring your vomit bag because I'm really good at this. Okay. Okay. I got a poem and it will be done. It's called all the words of this law. And Moses commanded the people on the same day saying, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people as directed by him. When you have crossed over the Jordan, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Abal to curse, so shall it be, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. 
And the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image. Yes, you bet. An abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. None who do this will be exempt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. Such a person's soul is cold and dark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind wander off the road. The door to hell he will be showed. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. That rotten scoundrel has got to go. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed. The guy who does this is as good as dead. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who with any kind of animal lies. He is cursed until and after he dies. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. He has taken the bad course. I guarantee that, brother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law. In pain and anguish, his tongue he will gnaw. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly. Open and exposed, his sins will be. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to an innocent person's sleigh. He will meet the devil in hell some fearful day. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. His life will end in turmoil and mayhem. And all the people shall say, Amen. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lesson of the law. Thank you for the images that have been given to us which point us to Christ Jesus and your love for the people of the world, your forgiveness of the people of Israel who violated every one of these laws, but you gave them the day of atonement as a sign of mercy and grace until the coming of the Messiah. And then he came and he lived out this life perfectly and he gave it up in exchange for sins of all the people of the world if they will simply believe. Thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. It is a difficult thing for us to do, to give up on our pride and give up on ourselves, but help us to do that so that we will bring honor and glory and blessing to you as sons of God through salvation because of the shed blood of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. So I was watching a video, a four-minute video yesterday that just popped up. Uh, explaining a guy was asking questions of a rabbi sitting there and he said why do Jews not accept the Christian Messiah Jesus and then he gave his explanation and I felt so bad for this guy when he was done four minutes the number of errors in thinking that he came up with to tell us to tell the people that he's responsible for why Jesus isn't the Messiah and one of the most obvious ones it's so obvious that you wonder if the guys ever read through the Torah one time he said that God would never manifest himself in human form. 
I mean, it's the wording is absolutely specific in Genesis chapter two that the Lord walked with with no with um, Adam and Eve in the garden. They, he was there doing that. He also Enoch walked with the Lord. But okay, you you might dismiss that as a parable, but you cannot dismiss Genesis chapter eighteen, where the Lord specifically it says the Lord Jehovah and two men came up to Abraham and they sat and ate with him. You cannot, that cannot be spiritualized in any way, shape, or form. And then the commander of the Lord's army, take off your feet, this is holy ground, in a parallel to the bush at Sinai. That cannot be dismissed in any way, shape, or form. The Lord came and presented himself to the parents of uh, Samson, okay, before he was born, saying what to do. These are things that they're known, people call them theophanies or the pre-incarnate Christ, and I reject that. It is a theophany, meaning a, a manifestation of God, but I do not believe in the pre-incarnate Christ. I believe in the eternal Christ. He is Jesus Christ, who is the master of time and space, and he showed up in his own history to affect these people so that history would lead to himself. There is no way you can get around that and say, I've read and believe this Torah that this man dismissed, and I, the first thing I did was I said, Lord, please open this guy's eyes. And that was just one of several errors that he made in a very short little thing. And I feel so bad for this. They have rejected. And that's what Jesus said in our closing verse there. Moses wrote about me. You search the scripture and you think you have eternal life? He wrote about me. I'm the one you need to be paying attention to. Never, never let anybody tell you that the Bible does not speak explicitly about these issues and that it's a book of contradictions, and it's a book of, that it's not. This is the pure word of God, 100%. Have faith in this word, because the world's getting really bad, and it's going to get really bad-er soon, and as it does, where are you going to put your hope? I'm telling you, this is the only place where hope can be found, is in the person of Jesus Christ and what he came to do, God incarnate.